0: The Belly of the Beast, with Brendan Macaulay, a Go
1: Light original.
2: Ned Broy had a ringside seat at the Treaty Negotiations in London in late 1921. These were to be vital negotiations for the future autonomy of Ireland. The talks would lead to the stepping stones to Irish freedom. While Ned Broy was not in the room where the talking was taking place, he was in the bedroom next door to Michael Collins. As a trusted ally, friend and confidant, Ed Broy knew more than most the precarious nature of the talks and the fears voiced late at night in private concerning the reaction of the diehard Republicans back home. The treaty negotiations finally brought peace and an absence of aggression and war, at least in the South. However, it was not long before war stalked the Irish landscape again. Now, rather than facing down a foreign enemy, the Irish were fighting against themselves. The Free State Provisional Government took the reins of power from the date the treaty was signed on the 6th of December. After days of bitter and angry debate, Dahl-Erin ratified the treaty on the 7th of January 1922 by the slimmest of margins of 64 in favour and 57 against. It is reasonable to presume that Ned Broy was at those debates. He must have wept to see his beloved hero, Michael Collins, whom he had seen painstakingly put together the terms of the treaty and who sat in torturous negotiations with the british political heavyweights in number 10 downing street get such vitriolic abuse from his fellow irish men and women in the assembly that the treaty had just legitimized after all ned roy slept in the bedroom next door to collins for the duration of the peace talks he knew more than most the personal toll that the talks had imposed on Collins. The reaction of the local IRA commanders to the treaty throughout the country was obvious. While most of the country were in favour of the treaty, no doubt just wishing to get their lives back to normal, the majority of IRA commanders and their men who actually did the fighting and endured living outdoors in appalling conditions for two years were dead against the treaty. They did not endure such pain and suffering for a free state where one had to take an oath to the King of England. They wanted nothing more than a full Irish Republic. The majority of women of na Naman also refused to accept the treaty. On the 9th of February 1922, Ned Broy joined a committee set up by Michael Collins to establish a new police force in Ireland. A tall order, and especially more demanding, when the group known as the Organising Committee on the Police was given a deadline of a few weeks as the RIC was to be officially disbanded on the 20th of February. The Organising Committee proposed that the Dublin Metropolitan Police be retained and the new police force should be called the Civic Guard and organised along the lines of the DMP, that is, with the same leadership structure and, crucially, to be an unarmed, community-based force. It was the Labour TD for Limerick, Cahal O'Shannon, who proposed in the Dál in July 1923 that the Civic Guard should be called An Garda Shekhana, the Guardians of the Peace. Ned Broy did not continue his association with the police at this time. Is it unfair to say he strategically avoided the horrors of policing during the bitter of civil war, which began in June 1922?
3: Ned Broy is very stitched in to the new dispensation and Collins has ideas for that. One of the pressures that's there from early 1922 is to build the foundation blocks for a new state and then it becomes increasingly urgent to have a new national army. Now, where can Ned Broy fit into that dispensation? What did he have to bring to a role in this new dispensation. And Collins would have had very strong views on that. One of the striking things about the correspondence of Michael Collins, the private correspondence of Michael Collins, is how fed up he got with incompetence. He didn't like people who were less energetic and less focused than him. He liked people to be disciplined around the tasks that they were given. And I suspect that he identified traits in Ned Broy that he thought would be very, very useful. There's an interesting exchange during the War of Independence between Eamon de Valera and Michael Collins, because Collins is usually giving out about his incompetent colleagues around the country. And Eamon de Valera writes to him and says, God did not give everyone the ordered mind he gave you, Michael. And it's a reminder that he was impatient that others were not up to his own standards and he did work very hard and he had a capacity to juggle an awful lot at the same time so he needs people like Ned Broy who do have discipline who have a, a certain quietness I think about them but will be devoted to the task because they're stitched into the idea of, of, of being part of, of this new dispensation of this new opportunity
2: What this fledgling state urgently needed was a police force freed from the taint of the Royal Irish Constabulary. On the 29th of July, 1922, Ned Broy joined the uniform of Commandant in the newly formed Irish Air Corps, stationed at the former RAF headquarters at Baldonnell. He was only one of two officers to be personally appointed by Michael Collins. It was in the Air Corps that Ned Broy was promoted to colonel, a title he used and was referred to for the rest of his life. I spoke with Dr. Michael C. O'Malley, who is a Lieutenant Colonel in the Air Corps and who wrote the definitive work on the history of the Irish Air Corps, and he explained how the Air Corps came to be.
1: Military aviation in this country actually happened a bit by accident because Michael Collins and Charlie Russell. Charlie Russell was a, a ex-RAF pilot. And they put together plans back in 1921. They put in together plans to set up a civil airline to have passenger service between Ireland and Great Britain. Much of the beginning of the early months of 1922... Russell was working on the plans that uh, Collins required to inform him as to what form a civil air service might take. As the Civil War approached, however, the plans that were being made for civil aviation had to be abandoned. Michael Collins anticipated that telephone communication in the country generally would be disrupted by uh, the warlike activities of of, uh, of the rebels he was proved right in this on the 21st of June 1922 he gave authority to General McSweeney he gave authority to him to go to London and purchase the first military aircraft the first aircraft didn't arrive until about uh, the 6th of July but in the meantime Collins Wanted to get military aviation going, he, he needed very badly to have reconnaissance flights done, uh, to tra- tracking the re- re- rebels as they moved towards the southwest.
2: Broy, however, in his typical Houdini-like way, now found himself front and centre. In the exciting new world of Irish aviation, again, Collins turned to his right-hand man and drew him into the
1: leadership of the Air Corps. In effect, Broy was second in command to McSweeney. McSweeney was GOC Military Air Service at that time, but Broy was also adjutant. But he was also the officer in charge of ground forces in Baldon. And this was a very, uh, it was a big job because uh, the numbers of uh, officers, NCOs and men uh, peaked at about 500 during the Civil War.
2: Unexpected shocking news can hit you like a ton of bricks. A day can begin like any other and time will pass as it always does until you are stopped in your tracks. Time is now measured before this day and after this day. On a random Tuesday evening, Ned Broy's world was changed. Changed utterly. I often wonder what was Ned Broy's reaction to the news he received on August the 22nd, 1922. As he was working in Baldonnell Airdrome that evening his friend Michael Collins was making his way through the ever-winding roads of West Cork back towards the city. As he passed through Noosa's town village towards Crookstown, his cavalcade was stopped by a blockade on the road near na nablau when shots rang out to break the stillness. It was here that Michael Collins took a bullet to the head. Michael Collins was killed in this deadly ambush. Ireland lost the man who had taken her to victory against the British and who showed great ambition and vision for the future. But Ned Broy lost the man he idolised and he also lost a great friend. Ned Broy never documented how he felt when the news broke, but one can only imagine the devastation he must have felt.
3: Broy would have been devastated by the killing of Collins I have no doubt about that consider the tone that he brings to his 1955 Bureau of Military History witness statement admittedly there's now the guts of 30 years more than 30 years have passed since the death of Collins but you can still detect almost a hero worship and I've described it before as a hero worship the adulation the deference the fondness the closeness He would have been devastated and that would have been a common reaction. There were those anti-treaty Republicans who did not shed tears over the death of Collins because they regarded his betrayal as just too much to forgive. But for those who associated themselves with Collins in a very personal way, even those who believed what's good enough for Mick is good enough for me, who would have followed him out of that sense of, of personal loyalty, even though most in the IRA were opposed to the treaty. Those who went with Collins would have seen that as a very personal type of loss. And it has been described as the, the major public tragedy of the Civil War. Uh, now you can argue, of course, that others get overlooked in relation to that, especially Arthur Griffith, which is interesting. And it, it, it happened so soon after the death of Arthur Griffith. And of course, Arthur Griffith didn't die in combat. Um, he, he wasn't the fallen lost leader to the same extent as, as Collins was presented. But, Many would have been deeply moved by that sense of a young leader cut down in his prime. And inevitably, it led to an awful lot of what ifs. What would Collins have done had he remained alive if he had survived the Civil War? I'm sure that's something Ned Broy would have given considerable thought to as well, because, you know, one of his key allies, somebody who has promoted him and His skills and his merits is gone.
0: Collins's death came as a terrible shock to Irish public opinion, and not just to his own side. A lot of his opponents were amazed, appalled, even devastated by the news of his death, because the Republicans had hoped to lure him back from what they saw as his errors, the error of his ways, to bring him back to their side. Uh, and they had hopes for him that they couldn't had for civilians like Cosgrave or O'Higgins or Blythe. But they hoped to lure him back. And it is said that when news of Collins' death broke uh, uh, among Republican prisoners, a lot of those Republican prisoners went on their knees and prayed for Collins. In that background, in this context, it is totally safe to take for granted that Roy would have been devastated. Collins was his man among the Irish leaders, uh, and their relationship had been close, as proved by the fact that Collins went to such lengths to get Roy out of jail. So, I think, even though Roy doesn't mention it in his memoir, we know that Roy must have been shattered when the news of Collins' death.
2: Imagine the heartbreak and disbelief felt by Ned Broy when he heard the news at his desk in Baldonnell Aerodrome. Guerrilla fighter, revolutionary, intelligence mastermind turned statesman and military leader, Broy's charismatic and deeply loved friend was dead at just 31 years of age. What this fledgling state urgently needed was a police force freed from the taint of the Royal Irish Constabulary. In 1925, Ned Broy left the Air Corps and joined the new the shikana Police Force at the rank of Chief Superintendent. He served in the depot in the Phoenix Park and later took over as head of the Special Branch when David Nelligan, who was a fellow spy operating from Dublin Castle during the War of Independence, was fired by Éamon de Valera when he became the president of the Dáil in 1932. Nelligan was notorious and used cruel and brutal methods of interrogation, especially against the anti-treaty side in the Civil War. Ned Broy did not make a public declaration about what side he took in the Civil War, but it is probably a very safe assumption that he supported the treaty, given that he was so closely aligned with Michael Collins both professionally as an intelligent agent for the IRA, but also personally as his personal private assistant during the treaty debates. It is also not unreasonable to assume that Ned Broy was being very politically astute by avoiding taking part in the Civil War as a policeman or in the Free State Army. It was this clever political astuteness that led to Ned Broy being promoted to the highest job within on the shikana. De Valera had narrowly defeated the WT Cosgrave government of Cumann which had been in power since the foundation of the Free State in 1922. Eamon de Valera made the controversial decision to remove O'No Duffy from the office of Garda Commissioner and appointed Ned Broy to the role. De Valera had chosen Ned Broy from a crowded field, ignoring Deputy Commissioner Eamon Coogan, for example. When asked in the doll by W.T. Cosgrave what characteristics Ned Broy had to begard the Commissioner that were lacking in Ono Duffy, de Valera said there was... One transcendent consideration. Broy had not been Chief under the last government since 1922. We wanted a Commissioner who no section of the community... ...could accuse of being deliberately and politically opposed to the new government... ...and likely to be biased in his attitude because of past affiliations. The early 1930s in Ireland was a very difficult time... ...to be the Commissioner of Angarda Schiacona. Both sides of the civil war were always close at hand. The Irregulars, or Republicans, who were against the treaty... ...and who still called themselves the IRA... ...felt they now had their man, Éamon de Valera, as head of government and they would be free to resume their civil war activities. On the other hand, retired members of the Free State Army who fought on the pro-treaty side and who formed themselves into the Army Comrades Association to promote the welfare of former soldiers. A vigilante group within the Army Comrades Association was formed to protect their meetings from interference from the IRA. This vigilante group became known as the Blue Shirts, and they had as their leader, Owen O'Duffy, the former Garda commissioner, who de Valera had effectively dismissed. There was a penchant for wearing shirts of various colours in Europe at the time. The brown shirts in Germany had just seen their leader Adolf Hitler become chancellor in 1933, and Benito Mussolini and his black shirts had assumed power 10 years previously in Italy. Fascism and dictatorship was in the air and it is to the credit of the elected politicians and the servants of the state, such as the heads of the Defence Forces and Ned Roy as guard the Commissioner, that Ireland did not succumb to dictatorship and Ireland remained as a parliamentary democracy and proved to be one of the few countries in Europe, along with Britain, that did so. Ned Roy had to walk a tightrope between the two factions And to impose the writ of the elected government in order to deal with o'duffy and the blue shirts the crime special branch was increased in force by over 500 hastily recruited officers many of these men were fianna fall supporters and as some were sworn in overnight they had little or no training in policing these enhanced special branch men were given the nickname of broy's harriers which was a very clever play on words that at once identified with Broy's athletics club, Clonliffe Harriers, but also, and rather more opaquely, with the Black and Tans, who were nicknamed after the Scarteen hunt in County Limerick. Broy had little to do with the recruitment of his so-called Harriers, but had huge concerns over their indiscipline and lack of proper procedures and protocols. The nominal link with the Black and Tans may not have been misplaced, as they often took the law into their own hands and were similarly vicious. A judge investigated the death of a 15-year-old boy at Marsh's Cattle Mart in Cork in August 1934 when an armed special branch squad supporting local Gardaí against farmers' protests over the payments of land annuities opened fire on the unarmed crowd. Mr Justice Hanna said... I find no justification at all for sending in fusillade after fusillade of revolver and shots into the crowd. And found prima facie evidence of manslaughter. He concluded that Broy's Harrier's principal and only qualification was that they knew how to handle guns. And he went on to say, These special branch men are not real civic guards. They are an excretience upon that reputable body. Ned Broy was generally well-regarded by rank-and-file file Garthie. There was disappointment at the dismissal of the popular Owen Duffy, but Broy soon established himself as a policeman's policeman. The Garthie were unable to form into a trade union, but taking the model from the London Metropolitan Police, there were two representation bodies set up, one for sergeants and rank-and-file file Garthie, and one for all other superior ranks. Roy met with these bodies regularly and tried to implement their recommendations. He favoured the request that Gardaí be allowed to vote in general elections. That they couldn't was a legacy issue from the RIC. He agreed to a proposal that monies from the reward fund be used to set up a Garda medical aid society. He actively recruited Irish speakers for Gaeltacht areas and Broy supported the proposal that married guards could not be transferred once their families had settled into an area. One area in which the commissioner had no remit was on salary and pay. This was the sole responsibility of the government and Minister for Justice. The cost of establishing the Free State, and particularly the costs of the Civil War, resulted in a 17% pay cut for all guards ranks in the 1920s. In 1937, the Garda representative body recommended a restoration of pay, stating that because Garda pay was so low, quote, loyal servants of the uniform and the state may become vulnerable to extortion and possible corruption, end quote. Broy signed the 12-page recommendation and it was passed to the Minister for Justice. The government... Felt that the pay demands were a threat to the state. Ned Broy's career as a policeman was over. His effective dismissal as Garda Commissioner came as a huge personal and professional catastrophe for Ned Broy. Ned Broy, who always went under his Air Corps title as Colonel Broy, was appointed as president of the Irish Olympic Council in 1935. Unfortunately, his tenure was doomed, as Ireland did not take part in the 1936 Berlin Olympics because the government in Dublin refused to accept that the national team would be known as the team of the Irish Free State of the South of Ireland. This would confirm the unwelcome partition of the country and force nationalist athletes in the north to march under the British flag. Ireland's non-attendance at Berlin must have infuriated Dr. Pat O'Callaghan, who sat in the stands in Berlin and witnessed the German Carl Hein win gold in the hammer throw. throw. Hein's winning throw was 10 feet shorter than the record set by O'Callaghan in the 1932 Los Angeles Olympics, for which O'Callaghan had won a gold medal. Another Irishman, Bob Tisdall, won gold in Los Angeles in the 400-yard hurdles. The 1940 and 44 Olympics, due to be held in Tokyo and in London respectively, were cancelled because of the Second World War. Colonel Broy stepped down as president of the Irish Olympic Council in 1948, the year of the London Olympics. Ned Broy was the man with the two masks, The man who was the spy and the police detective, the typist and the intelligence expert, the consummate professional and man of steel. In our rush to understand the historical context and nuance, we can often forget the humanity of the man. He was an athlete, a friend, a colleague, and most importantly for our next voice, a voice from Ned Broy's living memory, he was a
4: father. My name is Anya Broy and I'm the youngest daughter of Ned Broy and I'm delighted to be here in the house where he lived when he got married in 1923. He lived here in 1924 for 10 years in this beautiful house owned by Brendan and Georgina. To think my father and mother lived here how wonderful it must have been for them you know starting out then you know this beautiful house I was the youngest in the family, you see, and the rest of the family had moved on. They were going to college and doing everything, and they got married, and a lot of them went to work, but two of them went to work in England. So they were kind of way away from the house, so my father and I were very close. Then, you see, my mother was ill, so that uh, we kind of looked after her, and the rest was no hospital in those days, or no treatment, so we looked after her at home. He gave me Pierce Beasley's book to read, and then he said, I'd show you all the places in it, you know, Parnell Square, the Palms Hotel, all that sort of thing. He brought me up and showed me all that as well as Dame Street and the Castle and Crow Street, where they had the intelligence office, and of course, um, Pierce Street, which then was called Great Brunswick Street. Bringing around him, showing me, and I uh, showed me the Hibernian Bank on College Green, which is where my mother worked at the bank, which is unusual then, I'm sure. That was where he met it, Whatever financial transactions he was having, he'd go into the Hibernian bank on the way up to the castle. My father was to meet Michael Collins with some information. He couldn't remember what it was about, but some information he had to give to him. And he was to meet him at the Five Lamps, which was out near Fairview. And uh, these young boys uh, started letting off firecrackers, you know, which were exploding all over the place, like fireworks and everything. And he, they kept following him. And they said maybe by he told them to go away and all that, but uh, maybe they just decided they were not going to go away. So he said, I'm going to have to get rid of them. So uh, there was about six or eight of them. You know, he couldn't just get rid of one or two. And uh, he decided to take out his service revolver. There was a, a deserted house on the other side of the road, and there was a corrugated iron roof on an outside uh, roof. So he shot at that, and the noise was so shattering, they all fled. And this poor woman that was living in a house over the far over the same side of the road. She opened the window and she said, What the hell? You're after waking the child again. They said, Then he went on and he west, he met Michael Collins dead at the five lamps and he said, entirely unaccompanied by light. He had always had a gun. And we used to go to Croke Park. And he was he was a Kendare manager, waiting for Kendare to win. I'm still he's fifty years dead this year, they still haven't born. But anyway. Uh, we used to be there, and he, he used to say to me, you know, if, that, if that man doesn't shoot a goal, he said, I personally will shoot. It. I still have the gun that Collins gave him to protect him. It's ironic that the leader of the guerrilla warfare has given a member of the DMP a gun to protect himself. Did I tell you the story about the suit? No, when he was in um, Arbor Hill, he was in there for a good few, five, six months, and he had the same suit on all the time. And when he was getting out and the truce came, and he was, Michael was going to bring, go up to bring him out. He had a raincoat or something, and he uh, took it out and washed it. Raincoat as well as whatever his suit he was wearing. But anyway, Michael came up to collect him to take him out, but sure he'd take him out. just after the truce. And he brought up a suit, perfectly made for him. He got the measurements, because uh, the DMP men used to get their uniforms done in Callaghan's and Dame Street, which are well-known art but he got the measurements, I and mean, he had time to do this now. When you think the truce is on, and he's trying to get the country organised, he had the time to stop and do this for my father. brought me got the suit made and uh, brought it up to my father. He was thrilled. We went to Oaklands Drive, which is on the way to St. Luke's Hospital. We were there for, well, I was there for 40 years, but he was there maybe 30. He was there then, he showed it to me. Yeah, I, I, I was a child, and he wasn't aware the significance of that if only i was i was the age i am now i could ask all these questions but he really adored him like even in the witness statement the way he describes him across the room walking across to him this is the man it's great fun with mike you know he's an awful boisterous man yeah. and everything you know and he used to be tormenting poor emma dalton about the beds you know the metal beds they had in those days That it might have seen nothing of coming in lifting the whole thing over It was very strong put your man in it he Heaved him out of the vent get up he never oh yes yeah, when i was young He's always said to me, Michael Collins got up early every morning. He didn't lie in bed and wouldn't get out and go to school or go to work or whatever. He's always the <laughs> was, he, See, Michael was bravado. He was a, a brilliant young man. He was 30, you know, around 30 years of age, full of everything, yeah. I remember he, I'd say to him, where were you when Collins was shot know? He said, I was down at Bad Donald. He said, I couldn't do anything but he said he shouldn't have gone to court. Got it, absolutely got it, jail. You know? And for years afterwards, I think he was traumatized by that an awful lot, to be honest. He would, you know, he would spend a lot of time sitting in the chair reading. And he was retired, of course, at 51. And he spent an awful lot of time in the chair reading and everything when I was a child. He loved books, The house was full of books. I remember one day, a long time after that, a long, long time, I was maybe about 20 or so at this stage. My mother was ill upstairs. Was sitting, he was sitting there and he looked very sad and I said, What happened? What happened? He just said, the terrible price we paid for the sleeping I was in boarding school to sleep with my mother it wasn't well. He wrote to me every week and I have all the letters. And uh, I was looking at them last year sometime. And there's one about when Maud Kahn died. Sean McBride, he was in London with Dad during the negotiations. And when they were, when they were, you know, there were quiet moments. And they did what they wanted. There was a shooting gallery where you practice how to shoot. in somewhere down the road in London, and himself and Sean McBride used to go practice shooting with their guns, etc. You know, when you think of it now. He, later on, he was the head of the IRA, and I was the commissioner. Weird, <laughs> weird. But um, at this time, this was in the fifties, I think. And McBride had, uh, said he'd take my father and me on a tour at the Doll. You know, it was unusual those so days you didn't get in inside the door but we were standing in this kind of restaurant, we had to cook the tea, this kind of restaurant place, and we were standing there. My father was there, uh, my McBride was there, and I was here. And Ben Briscoe was there as well at the time. And uh, um, Dan turned around, and he said, oh, my God, he said, and he turned around. A colour of This was this woman, about six foot two, dressed in black from top to bottom, absolutely. She came, she walked up to us, and I, re- I recognised her, because, I mean, I was into my Irish history and reading about it and everything. I said, my goodness and Sean O'Reilly said, this is my mother, he introduced my father, me and she laughed and she looked at my father and she said, ah yeah, the g man you couldn't capture me, sure you couldn't and he said, ah oh, no, we wouldn't capture you, you were too beautiful But she, she said to me, I'm an old woman now he said, yeah, but your spirit is there But everywhere we went, people used to come up to him and say, sound man and brave man and all this sort of thing. we got to Crow Park and awful lot The men were always coming up to him saying, oh yeah, great, and all the rest. And I used to say, what should we do, Dad, that was so great? I was at the handing over of Dublin Castle to Michael. They had a commemoration this year. It was a very moving ceremony. I burst into tears in the middle of it all because I thought, of all the people, you know, Emmet, Wolf Tone, Parnell, all of them, that like they wanted our freedom, here it was. You know, it was a hundred years later. But we had got it, you know. It's incredible when you look at it, isn't it? The power of England compared to ours. Yeah. Even today, the size of Ireland compared to the size of England.
2: Ned Broy died in January 1972, aged 85. He died in the arms of his youngest daughter, Anya.
4: God sent me to look after him. I looked after him right up to his end. Like when I talked to him, stayed with him and everything. I looked out the window, and there's a side road beside the house. There was this hearse reversing to go down the avenue. And I thought, "Oh." I went back to the bed, and she put the butcher. He, he had a massive hemorrhage. And I had him in my arms on this side. And I was holding his wrist. And one minute, he was there, like that, warm and everything. Nothing there. Just one second. I said, God, the leak gone forever. And, but the only thing I feel so sad about the whole thing, he didn't get any of that in his lifetime. They treat him badly, you know? I, don't know. I don't know. Maybe they're old enemies, I don't know. But I mean I wish he'd got appreciation when he was alive.
2: Ever since I started my research into this most patriotic and enigmatic Irishman who contributed so much to the struggle for Irish independence, one question has always intrigued me. I wonder how come Ned Broy is not better known as a hero of the Irish War of Independence? Apart from the erroneous depiction of Ned Broy, played by Stephen Ray in the 1996 Neil Jordan film, Michael Collins, scarcely anyone has ever heard of him. This is a question I put to the historians who helped me unravel the life of Ned Broy.
3: Ned Broy is not better known today because he didn't blow his own trumpet to the extent that he might have. There are a variety of different reasons for that. Some of them are obvious, some of them we can only speculate about. You have to think about the kind of character that he was. He was somebody who was not given to trading on his past life as a spy. David Nelligan, who is in the business of spying at the same time in the heart of Dublin Castle in the 1960s, begins to write about this. He writes a series of newspaper articles, for example, in the Irish press, and that ultimately gives him the encouragement ...to write a book, The Spy in the Castle. Ned Broy is not in the business of doing that. Ned Broy's exploits are more likely to be read about... ...through work on Michael Collins... ...or the biographies uh, of Michael Collins. It may have been also he didn't think it was appropriate. Did he feel too that perhaps he had let down... ...ultimately he had let down Michael Collins... ...because he was caught, because he was arrested. Did he feel that? We can only speculate uh, about that... You've also got to consider the career that he had post the War of Independence and he ultimately became a Garda commissioner. Would it have been appropriate for a former Garda commissioner to be vocal about his exploits as a spy? I think that would have jarred and I think he would have regarded himself as inappropriate. You've also, of course, got the nature of the betrayal that he was involved in. ...the ethical issues that arise as a result of that. There are all sorts of ethical issues... ...swirling around the choices that people make. And Ned Broy would have been troubled... ...by some aspects of that, I've no doubt about that. And that nature of a troubled mind or a divided mind... ...would also perhaps have prevented him... ...for being robust in his reminiscing... ...unless it was for a future audience...
0: Roy was one of those who, by his very nature, had to remain in the background. He, he couldn't flaunt himself. He couldn't go public. Uh, and to that extent, he has been forgotten. And Peter Hart does uh, stress that of Collins' informants, Roy was by far the most significant. But still, he is less well-known than he desires to be. And of course, his role is travestied uh, in the film, Michael Collins okay, film directors are like novelists are allowed to play some games with historical facts historians have to accept this sad fact of life but Neil Jordan went too far uh, in, in his portrayal of Ned Broy in that film
2: This has been the story of Ned Broy Ned Broy the detective sergeant for the G-Men in the Dublin Metropolitan Police Ned Broy the spy for Michael Collins in the IRA Ned Ned Broy who had a ringside seat at the Treaty Negotiations in London. Ned Broy, who helped deliver the fledgling state into a full republic. With the hindsight of history, we now know that he prevailed despite having endured the knife edge of espionage as an undercover agent. The horrors of solitary confinement with treason hanging over his head. The terrifying prospect of death by firing squad at dawn one morning. But at that time, in the cauldron of Revolutionary War, he risked his life for the dream of Irish freedom, for the dream of freedom from the yoke of imperial domination. Knowing that he could have become another martyr for dear old Ireland, Ned Broy looked steadfastly into the eye of the imperial beast and using his native cunning, steely composure and innate courage worked to frustrate the efforts of the beast in maintaining power in ireland all in clear sight from his desk in his police station sitting here on this early autumn evening in ned Broy's home now my home i marvel at what a debt we owe him and why his name should be remembered ned Broy never sought recognition for his bravery He told his story to the Bureau of Military History in the 1950s out of a sense of duty to history, with the assumption that it would never reach public ears. This podcast calls his voice forward to the generations who owe him a huge legacy for their freedom and their self-determination. We must not forget.
4: My father's favourite tune was, you know, the one trees Theresa Brayton, the old Riot Bog wrote. He loved uh, that. My father that. I yeah, it, yeah. He loved that.
2: My feet are here on Broadway this blessed harvest morn, but oh, the ache that's in them for the spot where I was born, my weary. Mm-hmm. This podcast is researched, written and presented by me, Brendan Macaulay. The podcast is produced and edited by Orne O'Halloran. Sound design from Lachlan Hart. The podcast is brought to you by Go Loud, executive produced by Owen Brennan for Go Loud. Darren Cleary is our commissioning editor. With contributions from Professor Dermot Ferreter, Dr Jerry O'Neill, Professor Michael Laffin, Dr Michael C. O'Malley. And Anya Broy. Additional voices Colin O'Gorman, Dara McCauley, Orne O'Halloran, Georgina Byrne. My last Down by the Glenside was arranged by Dara McCauley and performed by Kira McCauley and Dara McCauley, with thanks to the Irish Military Archives and the Bureau of Military History online collection. Don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. Beside her bed, and Fairin's church was crowded when her funeral mass was said.